What does it mean to live in Ukraine for over a decade? Report about Ukraine's revolution, annexation of Crimea and Russia's war against Ukraine. What does it mean to be a foreign reporter in Ukraine and yet have a deep personal connection with this country? You're listening to the podcast Explaining Ukraine. My name is Volodymyr Yermolenko. I'm Ukrainian philosopher and chief editor of Ukraine World. In this episode, I speak to Christopher Miller, a lead correspondent in Ukraine for the Financial Times. Miller was previously a world and national security reporter for Politico and a Ukraine correspondent for BuzzFeed News. Before that, he spent five years as a correspondent for Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty in Kyiv. He has lived and worked in Ukraine for many years and just published a book, The War Came to Us, Life and Death in Ukraine, at Bloomsbury Publishing. Ukraine World is a website in English about Ukraine. It is brought to you by Internews Ukraine, one of the largest Ukrainian media NGOs. You can support our work at patreon.com slash ukraineworld. Patreon.com slash ukraineworld. Christopher Miller, welcome to this podcast. Thank you for having me. Good to be back. Yeah, we, we made... Uh, a few podcasts, uh, I think, for explaining Ukraine. Once we've made in the studio in Kiev, and another time online. So thank you for coming back. Of course. And you brought me a wonderful book, which is covered uh, with the colors of Ukrainian flag, and it's called uh, "The War Came to Us: Life and Death in Ukraine." And you are one of those journalists who were here for long, long years. Can you tell me your story? Yeah. Um, first, I'll, I'll just mention about the cover um, because you, you you mentioned the the blue and yellow uh, flag. It's it's actually a uh, photograph um, by the late photographer and friend of mine, Max Levin. Uh, we did some reporting together out in the Donbas back in the day, and one of the things that I I asked my publisher to make sure of was that we used a photograph of a Ukrainian photographer who I had worked with in the past, and I said if if possible, I would like us to find a photograph to use that uh, came from Max's pro, uh, portfolio. So we found one, and I think it works very well. You understand exactly what uh, what you get looking at the cover, right? A blue yeah. and yellow flag and uh, uh, shrapnel ridden. Um, it's actually, it was a photo he took in Ilovaisk in 2014. Um, yeah, so yeah, the book... Um, and just to tell to our audience, Max Levin is not with us anymore, right? He, yeah. He was killed uh, by the Russian soldiers at the, at the early stages of this full-scale war. So he's one of those journalists who are who were killed. Yeah. And, and tomorrow would be his birthday. So, um, yeah, there's a lot, of, a lot of people who miss him, obviously. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, the, the book, um, I mean, like, like I did with choosing the photo for the cover... In the book, I really wanted to make a point to tell as many stories as I could about the many, many Ukrainians I have come across. As First, as a Peace Corps volunteer, when I moved to Ukraine first in, in March of 2010 and lived in Bakhmut when it was called Artyomovsk um, for two years. And then the people I met along the way as I became a foreign correspondent in Kiev working for the Kiev Post and then working for various international Western media, um, covering the revolution in 2014, covering uh, Russia's first invasion of Crimea and then in the Donbass. And then, of course, over the the past uh, more than a year now during the full-scale invasion, you know as well as I do that there are so many inspiring, incredible, harrowing stories Um of people and events here. And I really wanted to write a book that I think captured what it felt like to be in those moments and to really paint a picture for people outside of Ukraine um, uh, to show what it was like and to, to allow them to get to know better the people involved. And also, you know, this is a book that's certainly written from my my perspective. Uh, I'm essentially your your narrator taking you on this journey that I was uh, fortunate enough uh, to to 
be able to go on by sort of accidentally arriving in Ukraine when I did and doing all of these things over the last 13 years in parallel with Ukraine as it's gone through, I think you'd probably agree the most monumental uh, events and, and moments of its of its modern history that's shaped it to become what it is what it is now. So I haven't yet read the book, <laughs> unfortunately. I would love to talk to you after I read the book, but uh, it's quite thick. It's uh, 370 more pages, and it's actually cut in two parts, right? So four parts, four parts, actually. Four parts. You know, yeah. So like I said, I, I arrived here in in uh, March of 2010, so just shortly after Viktor Yanukovych was elected president, which was a pretty interesting time, as you'll recall. So the, the, the four parts of the book are uh, one, uh, part one is, is essentially called Peace. And it's what, how Ukraine found itself after the election of Viktor Yanukovych, who we know was um, uh, rigged an election in 2004 and lost to Viktor Yushchenko and came back to be legitimately elected in 2010. And so the first section of the book uh, speaks to what Ukraine was like under Yanukovych, how we got to the point where Ukrainians were so outraged that they took to the streets in uh, 2013 um, to to protest his decision to turn away from the European Union and sign a deal with with Russia that would have brought it closer uh, to Moscow's orbit, and uh, and that's where the book enters part two, which is Maidan. Uh, revolution and um, uh, annexation, right? So the covert invasion by Russia of Crimea. And then part three is the Russian invasion of Donbass in 2014. So it's packed with dispatches and experiences and interviews from that first really crucial summer of 2014, when I think armed covert, um, uh, you know, uh, Russian uh secret proxies began taking over buildings and then it blew up into a into an actual war um and then of course the it, that takes us into the last part of the book uh which begins at the end of 2021 when russian soldiers were um being sent to the borders of ukraine just before the full-scale invasion and, and and then you know the book takes you on that sort of journey that i've been on the last year, uh, almost year and a half in reporting on the events, uh, you know, first in um, uh, the Donbass, where I'll be honest, I thought most of the action would be taking place. I think a lot like a lot like President Zelensky and, and people in Kiev thought. And I woke up on February 24th to the missile strike at the airfield in Kremitorsk. And when we learned that Russian soldiers were moving swiftly on Kiev, I hightailed it back from Kremitorsk to Kiev to make sure I was in a place to cover that. Um, so the rest of the book goes sort of, you know, through the stages that you're aware of, uh, you know, the, the battle for Kiev, um, all of the interworkings, the, in, the inner workings of the presidential administration, a lot of behind the scenes discussions, and then right back out to the streets where people were mobilizing, you know, building Molotov cocktails and block posts and moving as quickly as they can to stop Russian forces. Um, yeah. I will I, ask you about these first days because they're very, very dramatic and very, very interesting. But first tell me, uh, because we understand that we Ukrainians uh, see lots of books which are, which are going uh, about Ukraine and uh, about this war. And actually, I think there are more international, more foreign books about this war than internally Ukrainian books because... For Ukrainians, it's very, very hard. You know, you, ha you have to have distance. It's very hard to describe how your house was destroyed, how the house of your parents were, dis uh, parents were destroyed, or how you, your friends have died, etc. But you, you are a special story because you have been here for much, much, many years. Do you still feel yourself as a kind of an objective observer, an outsider, or you feel like a part of the family? No, I, I would not say... I, w I wouldn't use the word objective. I would say in my reporting for the Financial Times, I, I certainly try to remain impartial, um, which is to say, um, you know, I, I do my absolute best to not both sides the story, right? Um, it, this is a conflict that is arguably more black and white than any in recent past, where I think it's pretty clear there is 
a good and a bad, an aggressor and uh, a, a victim here, right? And we know who those we know who those sides are. Um, for that reason, you know, I think it's I think being impartial and not objective is is the way to be, right? We can call a spade a spade. We can say exactly what is happening, and I do in my reporting still say this is what the Kremlin says, but we caveat it with. The Kremlin's are the the Kremlin is uh, filled with known liars. Um, everything they have said has proven to be the opposite, so forth and so on. Um, you know the what what I did for 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 this book and and you know I guess back to you know to to, to your question, am I um, can I sort of remove myself from this? I'm I'm not Ukrainian. I I don't have Ukrainian heritage, so there will always be, I, I will never be able to, I think, feel what you and many of my friends are feeling and experiencing in the same way. I have been here for a very long time, which means I've developed some very, very close relationships and friendships. And I am still very close with many of the people who I met in Bakhmut 13 years ago. That's a long time to be to be friends. So I, I know them very well. You know, we we get together for uh, the the birthdays of their children. Um, you know, we celebrate their weddings and their anniversaries and and birthdays. And um, you know, when I when when I see missiles strike in places where I have friends, the first thing I do is pick up the phone and write or call them and, and ask if they're okay. Like when I saw that Russia had launched a missile attack on Lviv, I immediately reached out to several friends of mine who were forced to flee Bakhmut earlier this year and now live in Lviv to make sure that they were all right, they were safe. Um, you know, so this is all to say that it's a war that is deeply personal to me. Ukraine is a place that is deeply, deeply personal to me. I think that is also why I chose to name the book The World The, the War Came to Us. Us in this sense is certainly the millions of Ukrainians who, uh, who whose country has been invaded, but you know, myself who um, has lived here for such a long period of time and um, become so close to these people I mentioned and uh, you know, I, I was here when it when it happened, right? I mean, in 2014, I was uh, I was one of the first, if not the first, foreign correspondent who was on the ground covering the revolution. Um, I was certainly one of the first out in the Donbass covering it uh, day in and day out, um, and uh, I was you know I was here on February 24th as well um, when Russian troops came marching in, thinking that they were going to take the capital. Let's come back to this first day. So you, you rushed from Kramatorsk to Kiev. Uh, I remember in another podcast in, in French, which uh, Tanya Harko, my wife, does, and she talked to a journalist you know very well, I think, uh, Gulliver Craig from, uh, from yeah. 24. And uh, he was describing those moments as extremely sad. So he was almost crying, remembering those first days. Um, did you have the impression on the 24th that it can be all over very quickly and Russians will take over power here in Ukraine and Ukraine will cease to exist? Hmm, that is a very good question. Uh, 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 several questions. Um, you know, I I knew before February 24th and I certainly had, as it says in my book, a very good sense of what would happen on February 24th um, on the evening of, of the 23rd. I was getting phone calls from some of my sources in the United States. Um, I was speaking with some of my Ukrainian sources who at that point had received more detailed briefings, uh, in some cases more detailed than they have led on to believe publicly. I remember that night mm. on the 23rd, yeah. Mm -hmm. Everything was already clear. Yeah. yeah, and certainly after Putin's speech, we all knew that it was something was imminent. When the missile struck the airfield, it was absolutely terrifying. It, it's, it's the airfield in Kramatorsk is very close to the Kramatorsk hotel where I was staying. Um, and the Kramatorsk hotel, um, is, is adjacent to the Ria pizza that was struck, um, that led to the, the killing of, of 13 people, including, uh, our, our friend Victoria Molina, um, recently. So, um, you know, this is a city that was under, 
uh, immediately under heavy bombardment. It was, I don't know if I'd say sad. I think, in, you know, um, I, I can see why Gulliver would, 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 would describe it as sad, but I would say that first it was just an adrenaline rush. Huge explosions, flashes of light, the entire building shook. I knew exactly what happened in that moment. And I remember there were several foreign correspondents running in the hallway in their underwear, didn't really know what was going on and didn't speak Russian or Ukrainian. And there was a, a woman who worked at the hotel who was going up and down the hall telling people, you know, get to the basement, get to the bomb shelter. And they asked me, you know, what is she saying? And I said, she's saying, remain calm, get to the bomb shelter. Um, and they had to ask me where it was. It was, it was this moment of, I think, great uncertainty. Um, I think it was also frightening. And certainly when I saw the first images come in of helicopters zooming over Kiev Oblast and the soldiers on armored vehicles passing through checkpoints in Chernobyl and in, in, in Chernigov region and um, Sumy, I, I think it was, and, and, and Kharkiv as well. That was that was a, a very terrifying moment. And there were so many of them. I think I was worried that the scale of this would be even bigger than we all imagined. I remember thinking, damn, the US intelligence was spot on and right. Because there was certainly a part of me that I think thought, okay, the Russians are going to invade. It's, it's clear. But the focus will be in the Donbass. The scale of it will be greater than we've seen, than we saw in 2014 or after. But it'll be largely focused on the south and the east. Um, and, you know, possibly Kharkiv region. We, we, we know that, you know, Russia likes to say, and, and, and certainly seems to believe that there's a large Russian footprint and, and a, large, a large contingent of sympathizers there, which was more true in 2013-14 than it is today, for sure. So I, I, I just, you know, part of me couldn't believe what I was seeing. It was unbelievable. Russian troops marching on Kiev in the 21st century. It was all just very, it was very old school and, uh, and terrifying. But at the same time, as a journalist, you know, my, my thought was, I, I, I need to be in Kiev. Um, as much as I wanted to remain in the Donbass, just my personal connections and my sources and friends there and relationships with, with, with soldiers. And I, I knew that getting to the capital was important. If Kiev were to fall, I needed to be able to report. When I got back there, I spent the first night in the bomb shelter of the Radisson Blue Hotel. And I remember I did not sleep all night. I my car was parked in the uh in in the underground parking garage. I just reclined my seat. I was basically scrolling Twitter all night, texting sources, calling Ukrainian officials. It was just, I mean, total chaos and uncertainty and I think, you know, Ukraine was certainly saved by society again mobilizing itself. I think, and, and this is, uh, you know, I think underscored in, in, the, in the book that a lot of Ukraine's leadership was caught off guard. There were elements of the military that weren't. The Air Force was actually really well prepared. But other segments of the military, the National Guard, the president's office uh, were, were, were more unprepared. I think... Uh, you know the the fact that Kiev didn't fall is probably owed as much to civil society and volunteers taking up arms when they swung open the doors when the police and, and the military swung open the doors of the armories and allowed them to take rifles and run to Butch or run to Urpin or or elsewhere um, as as much as the military that eventually did respond and um, and and fight back uh, the Russians but I, I think yeah there was a moment where. It, it felt like it could go either way. Like, like we might wake up tomorrow and see Russian tanks in the city of Kiev. When was, was the moment when you understood that Kiev is not going to fall? Because uh, as for me personally, as soon as I have seen so many barricades uh, growing like, you know, vegetables, you know, very, very quickly, and so many people really taking up arms. And I agree with you that army was, was prepared uh, much more than political class. 
And this is also one of the paradox of, of, of this. But when was the moment? Do you remember that? Yeah, I think I think I was in uh, on the edge of Irpin by the bridge that had been blown up to stop the Russian advance. Uh, so what would that have been? I think it was early March, maybe the end of the first week of March. So I guess a, around, I don't know, day 10, 11, 12. Um, and I was, I was in Erpin and the fighting was really intense. There was shelling all around. It, I, th I think actually this day was the day after the family that was photographed by the New York Times photographer, Lindsay Adario, was killed by a mortar. And I think that really captured the world's attention, right? And and people understood that, you know, Russians are shelling civilians. They're really close to the capital, home to more than 3 million people. Anyway, I was, I was with a group of soldiers and they were warning me not to go, not to go beyond the bridge, right? And... I had considered it with a, a, a unit um, that we, uh, myself and, and my journalist colleagues were talking to um, and quickly decided not to because of the intensity of the fighting. And there was this series of explosions that sounded a lot further away. It was not incoming. I recognized it as outgoing fire. And I asked one of the soldiers, is, is, uh, is it ours? And he said, yeah, it's ours. You know, meaning these are these are uh, our mortars, um, our artillery systems that are being used. And the next thing he said was was really surprising to me, but it made sense being there. Um, I wasn't hearing or or seeing a lot of incoming fire, and he said we've managed to push them back. And he said something along the lines of, um, "Yeah, you know, they're they're countering them, um, or we have them on the run, something like that." And I remember thinking, okay, they've 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 got a real good shot at at holding at holding back the Russians. And then a, another day went by, and and Russia made no more advances in that direction. And I think, you know, the, it was it was within another week that the Russians were pulling back. And I think each day after that experience, it became more clear that Kiev would stand. There would be a ton of destruction, and obviously what we saw in Bucha after Russia withdrew was horrendous, and there would be all sorts of atrocities carried out around Kiev. Um, but I think that's when I realized that, uh, yeah, that they can do this. You know, Ukraine can do this, the military can do this. Um, it, was, it was really remarkable. Yeah, um, um, since then I traveled a lot across, um, around Kiev, and at some places... For example, Irpin or Bucha are very close, but there are places which are even closer, like Horenka, for example. And there is this darchas in in Horenka uh, or uh, in in um, in in uh, Motyzhen, right? No, Moshun, mm -hmm. and um, and completely destroyed. So you understand that there is a there was a intense intense fire intense destruction and there are several hundreds of houses of which nothing is preserved and uh, it's just maybe 10 minutes walk from the from the border of kiev or um, at a city in which i'm living brovary actually uh, i remember taking people from the last houses of brovary and um, in a couple of hundreds meters there was already another village in which there was a fight. So it was really very, very close. There was also a contingent of Russian soldiers that, that made their way actually pretty far up the uh, Lviv-Kiev highway toward Kiev and managed to cross it, if you remember. And, and there were some just south of the highway trying to s swing south of Kiev to, to, you know, to flank it and kind of encircle the city. And some of them wanted to make their way to Vasil Kiev because of the military presence there in the airfield that they were trying to secure. I um, know that very well because mm -hmm. um, the Dutch of, of my wife's parents are near Vasilkiv. So we were there and they were really trying to get because there is an airport. And yes, they blocked this uh, this highway to Zhitomer and, and to Lviv and uh, they captured several several villages on the, on the southern side. So uh, at a certain moment, the only way to quit Kiev was to the south, to the... To Odessa to Uman. Let me ask you: uh, after after the liberation of the Kiev region, there was this Bucha, right? Uh, and 
uh, I've, I, I, I was not in the group of journalists who, who entered Bucha. Mm-hmm. Uh, you also weren't in, in that with with this group of journalists, but um, but I mean, uh, I, I'm sure you you, you followed the, the stories of Bucha and maybe uh, other atrocities. Other stories of people that that actually was was shocking to you. Yeah, I I was in Bucha shortly afterward, and um, I I actually spent <clears throat> so one one thing I like to do. I mean, I, I wanted to see, you know, the aftermath of Bucha myself, and I didn't go with that group of, of journalists immediately. Um, uh, it was sometime uh, a little bit later that I that I went to Bucha, and Rupin, and and other towns. Um, one thing I like to do is is kind of go where others are not going, because um, what I found in, uh, for for example, and the reason I brought up the the highway and the fact that Russian soldiers had made it up quite a good distance and and crossed it on the south side of that. Was because I, I went to um, I, I think the town of uh, Makarev, and then Makarev, yeah. mm-hmm, Makarev, and then um, there was a couple of small villages south of there. It's precisely Motijin where Olhashenko yeah. yeah. was was killed and uh, Bilohorivka, I think. Right, yeah. right, and then and then south of the highway, there are a couple of other small villages um, uh, just on the opposite side there, and I went so I went to those places and spoke with people, and there was not a single person I talk to on the street or in front of their homes who didn't have a story that was just horrific of how they had been treated or somebody else had been treated and in many cases killed and i realized that everyone i was seeing was a woman it's because all of the men were gone they had been kidnapped tortured murdered in one case this woman found her husband in the trunk of his own car when she discovered him, she was with um, a police officer who told her not not to touch anything because he it could be mined. So what they what they did, they were able to somehow peek inside and, and and see that he was in there. They attached a string to the to the trunk of the car to pop it open, and they they walked back with it. And I guess they were you know fifty or sixty feet back and kind of stood behind an obstacle and pulled it open. And sure enough, it detonated. The Russians had not only murdered him, they'd actually booby-trapped him so that whoever found him would be killed themselves. Everywhere I went, I heard stories like this. And, I mean, yeah, they all, they all stuck with me. You know, and many, many of them are, are explained in the book, and, and this woman um, is, is, is named, and, and you know, she, she tells me her story about what happened. Um, but, yeah, I found all of those shocking. I think, you know, it's just the how uh, how many places were affected it wasn't you know bucha bucha is the the name i think that the world knows because the atrocities there were certainly on a horrific and grander scale than a lot of these other villages but i think that's that's you know it, it's it's one of many where these these atrocities occurred right i forget the name of the town you can you can maybe recall it but the uh it was a little further north where uh children and and residents were all locked into a basement for weeks Yahidna. it's Yahidna Yahidna. Yahidna. Yeah. yeah yeah i mean that is a horrific story and you know marking in chalk on the walls how many people are dying each day i mean it's everywhere you went everywhere i went to report and talk to people everybody had a story and 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 they were all i mean just gut-wrenching i i think you know what happened in kiev region i i think if the war had been if russia's focus had been what vladimir putin said in his speech on february 23rd you remember he 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 announced his quote-unquote special military operation and said it was um you know the goal the goal was to uh take back donetsk and lugansk oblast because they were russian he says right i think if he had done that I'm not. I'm not quite sure that our, you know, our Western, my 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 government in the United States and 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 Europe would have come as as and we can we can argue about the pace at which they've supplied uh, assistance to Ukraine, but I'm not sure we would see the same assistance on this scale um, or this quickly. And I know sometimes it doesn't feel quick, but these are large states and bureauc- with dense bureaucracies. But because Russia tried Kiev. 
And because it did all of these horrific things around Bucha, I really think that is what captured the world's attention and got much of the international community firmly on Ukraine's side. Um, and and like I mentioned earlier, um, this, this war is certainly more black and white, good versus evil, than I think a lot of wars past. Um, and, and Bucha underscored that for I think for the for the international community and then you have atrocities like visible right when uh, when you go to the underground when you see people with with their hands tied or people decapitated or you see that mass grave in Bucha near the St. Andrew Church but then there are lots of things which are not that visible for example when Russians are bombarding the big residential buildings and you have seen, I have seen such buildings in Borodanka, in Izum, and uh, you never understand why you would need to, 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 to drop an aviation bomb on such buildings when you know that there is no military there or that people are hiding in the basement or, or the theater in Mariupol, all, all this stuff. So it's, it's really, um, you know, raises lots of moral questions. Mm-hmm. What is happening in the minds of those people who are taking these decisions? Let me ask you about the front line. You mentioned Bakhmut. So Bakhmut is, you know, one of the most symbolic names. And I don't know if you have been there during the the, 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 the fights there, but uh, maybe you can tell stories about these regions, why the fights are so severe and uh, why everything is concentrated now uh, around Bakhmut. Many things. Yeah, yeah. So I used to live in Bakhmut for, for two years, between 2010 and 2012, and I know it... Um, the city, its people, its geography very well. When when Russia first started focusing on Bakhmut uh, last summer, summer of 22, I think, you know, in May of 2022 is when we saw the first airstrikes on Bakhmut and some some deaths of, of uh, civilians in residential buildings. Uh, I went there in May. I had been there. I had been there before February twenty fourth. Uh, you know, to see some of my my very close friends. Um, I returned in May and spent several days there, and the fighting was starting to pick up. There was audible shelling all around the city. It wasn't the the you know really grinding close combat warfare in the city yet. The Russians were on the outskirts. They were using artillery and. Um, airstrikes, you know, missiles, longer range missiles to attack the city and as they as they approached it. Um, I returned again in uh, August and things had significantly escalated. Um, the fighting was much more intense. The Russians were on the eastern outskirts of uh, Bakhmut and they, you know, Bakhmut exists in a valley. So the Ukrainians had high ground in Chasovyar and Ivanovsky on the western edge of Bakhmut. The Russians had higher elevated ground on the eastern side, um, just past the the famous uh, Artyomovsk winery. It kind of, uh, the, a, a hill starts going up, and if you go beyond that, you know, you can go to Debaltseva and Svitladarsk and all of those places. Um, Shakhtarsk, well, no, not Shakhtarsk, um, Stakhanov. Um, so they were pressing on that eastern side, but they weren't having a lot of luck, right? By the next time I showed up, it was December of 2022, and Wagner had gotten involved, and they were leading Russia's fight for Bakhmut, and things were significantly worse. Uh, I was there for a couple of days, and there was constant shelling. I counted no more for, for the morning period when I had arrived, in a period of, I think, maybe three, four hours, there was hardly 10 seconds that went by without an explosion. And sometimes more explosions in a matter of 10 seconds than I could count. That's how intense it was. And I was standing in the very city center of what used to be called Lenin Square. And he was ripped down after decommunization began in 2016. But... I could sense that, you know, this wasn't going to end well for Bakhmut. A lot of the city at that point had already been shelled. The two apartments that I had lived in had been damaged at that point. They weren't yet destroyed, but School 11 in the city center had been damaged by shelling. Uh, the Krasny Village School, which now is called Ivanovsky, um, on the western outskirts, uh, was was intact, but some of the village um, there had also been damaged. Um, 
the uh, the football or the uh, yeah the football stadium, the Olympic Stadium for um, Olympic. Well, it was uh, a training center for um, uh, Olympic athletes. Ukraine's Olympic athletes had also been hit. You'll probably remember that giant crater in the in the stands and in the roof of it. At that point, most of the city had fled. There were not many people left. It's a city of well, a pre-war population of, I know people like to say 70,000. It actually had more simply because it actually housed a lot of people that had who had fled from Donetsk, from Gorlovka nearby years ago and um, had come to live there. Uh, so it was probably closer to 80,000. Of that number, you know, it was less than half that remained. And over the next several weeks, thousands were were, were, were fleeing um, every day because it got so hard to be there. There was just no moment where there wasn't an explosion. Um, the Ukrainian military was suffering serious casualties. The hospital in Bakhmut was overflowing with really gruesome wounds and wounded soldiers. The Russians also were taking huge casualties. You'll remember Wagner and its warlord leader, Yevgeny Prigozhin, was sending its you know, uh, recruited convicts from Russian prisons to their death in these quote-unquote meat waves, right? Like World War I style, just brutal close quarters combat over open fields and then finally into the city of Bakhmut. The one thing that really struck me was Ukrainian soldiers digging trenches in the very heart of the city. There are two squares in, in Bakhmut. One used to be for Artyom, for which the, the city was named after by the Soviets, uh, an ally of, of Stalin, for, you know, of, of Bolshevik, Bolshevik moments, uh, uh, years. And um, the other one used to be called Lenin Square. Now they're just, you know, they're the city's central squares. And the Ukrainian soldiers were digging trenches, preparing for urban warfare. And... Uh, I had a cigarette with one of them and he just needed a break. And I was like, can I talk to you while, uh, while you take a break? And he's like, yeah, what do you want to talk about? And um, all these explosions were happening. He said, you know, he walked me under this tree for relative shelter. And um, I mentioned him that I had lived in Bakhmut many years ago. And he thought that was just wild. I'm an American living in Bakhmut. Why? Right. And I, I told him my story about going out there for the Peace Corps. And I said, it was striking to me that you're digging in this square. The last time I saw anyone digging in this square was when I lived here in 2011. The German government had come to local authorities and said Nazi soldiers had been buried in this in a plot where this square is now. We would like to repatriate them. Can you excavate them, dig them up and and send them back? And I was walking uh, to um, Silpo, the supermarket. Uh, one late morning, and there were a bunch of city workers digging holes in this city square. And I asked them what they were doing. And one guy holds up a bone and he's like, pulling out Nazis. And I just thought that was totally surreal. And so as I'm fast forward now to December 2022, I'm talking to this soldier about that. You know, he says something along the lines to me of like, well, the Nazis are coming back you know, meaning the Russians that are just now several hundred meters away. And I just thought that was so surreal, you know, this kind of almost history repeating itself in a way and, uh, and doing so in a place that I lived that was, that was my adopted home. Um, yeah, and, and of course we know, you know, now um, Bakhmut's fate was that it would be completely destroyed by Russian artillery and Wagner's fighters would carry out horrific atrocities uh, and torture of, of Ukrainian soldiers. And, you know, now the fight for Bakhmut, I think, is ongoing. The Ukrainians are showing a little bit of progress on the northern and southern flanks of the city. And there's some hope that they can, um, you know, recapture some of these advantageous positions on hillsides that allow it uh, possibly to, in the future, uh, retake it. If, if it can do so during the counteroffensive, I think that would be great. What do you think of the future of Wagner and uh, how it will influence the, this war? Because we all know the story about Prigozhin's mutiny or revolt. What do you think? Will Russian army be weaker after, after that? Yeah, that's a really good question. You know, the Wagner fighters were for a period of 
eight months. I mean, the only truly solid fighters that Russia could put forward. They were the only ones making any kind of offensive gains. Um, they were absolutely brutal. Um, you know, the, the Russian military tried its hand at its own offensive in January and February and was beaten back uh, very successfully by by Ukrainian forces in Vugladar, for instance, um, and elsewhere along the front line. The Russian army made no progress. You know, with Wagner being in the, you know, difficult, difficult position that it's in now after a failed mutiny, and 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 not as 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 much as we know um, present in Ukraine. I think you know time will tell whether or not the Russians are going to be able themselves to go on any future offensives to capture what Putin claims to be more you know Russian territory. Um, what what I think is is becoming clear right now uh, as Ukraine's counteroffensive gets underway in earnest and isn't having, I think, the the type of success that a lot of the world expects it to have. It's, it's you know, it's, it's struggling. There's not a lot of momentum yet. Russian forces have done a pretty solid job of digging in, laying a lot of mines, God knows how many. They've set up really dense defensive lines, especially in the Zaporizhia region, making it really hard for Ukrainian forces to punch through. So the Russians might not be great right now at offensive operations and Ukraine is certainly good at keeping uh, at keeping them at bay. But they've they've shown to do a very good job of defending what they've already taken. And I think I think that is something to be concerned about because you know Ukraine's I I think future support from the West is likely to hinge on Ukraine's success on the battlefield during its counteroffensive. I, I don't think that the US or, or, or other Western allies in Europe especially are are going to pull back all of their aid and say, okay, now you're on your own because you didn't succeed and take back all of the occupied territories. Um, but, you know, the the United States in particular, but a lot of Western supporters, they, you know, they're, they're betting on a winner. They, they want Ukraine to win. We all want Ukraine to win, right? And um, the better they do, I think the more support they'll get. And, you know, let's just hope that the Russian army continues to be not great at these offensive operations and that um, their defenses are, you know, are penetrable. And, uh, and that some of what I'm saying about them actually being pretty good at uh, defending what they've got and digging in so deep that... You know the Ukrainians aren't going to. The Ukrainians are struggling. Um, let's let's hope some of that is uh, not quite right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But I can confirm what you say because we've we've just been to uh, uh, some time ago to the south to Zaporizhia and uh, also to the east um, up to Kostantinivka and people whom we talk to also are working on the southern direction. So they they say the same. So this is this is true. Unfortunately, uh, primarily. Uh, about the the minefields, but let's hope that we will find Ukraine and its partners will find a way how to overcome it. Mm, you talk to I assume many Ukrainian soldiers, and many of them are not professionals. So we understand that Ukrainian army right now is full of you know people who are actually civilians. Can you probably tell some stories that that impressed you? Yeah, but, but you know, I think. I think civilians and people who are non-soldiers to begin with joining Ukraine's fight, you know, that's, that's not new. That's, you know, the scale of it certainly is right. But you remember in 2014, it was, it was volunteers and, and a lot of people who didn't have any military experience uh, rushing to the front lines in the East to fill the void left by a lot of uh, soldiers who were afraid to fight. You know, so I think that's there's something there's something in um, there's something in the water here, right? That like people are are, are ready. Um, that makes them just like ready to, to to join up and to fight. Yes, there are countless stories that I could tell. I suppose um, I don't want to mention some names just because uh, I you know I'd like to 
to ask them for some, you know, maybe permission to use their names. But I'll tell you the story of one uh, old friend of mine who I have known now for, I guess, 12 years. Uh, he's from Kiev region. Uh, he and his wife were friends with um, myself and my wife. Um, we used to get together uh, at Yaroslav Cafe on Yaroslavovol. It was one of our favorite places. He is highly intelligent, speaks multiple languages. Um, was a great translator, um, uh, and uh, you know, just a just a really nice, kind, polite guy who you would never in a million years look at and think this guy could be a soldier. Fast forward to February 24th and Russia invades full scale. Everybody's running to join up. He doesn't bat an eye. He's one of the first to get down to the uh, Territorial Defense Forces recruitment office and you know slaps down his passport and says, I'd like to join. And they ask him, do you have any experience? Nope. Um, it, you know, he's not, and he's not bothered by that. Takes up a gun and becomes a soldier and serves in several different places along the front line. Eventually in January gets told, we need you to go to the Donbass. And a couple days later, he's in Chasov Yar and they say, we need, we need you to go to Bakhmut. And this Kiev territorial defense force that had been moved east he was one of, I think he said 22 guys and they're sent into Bakhmut and within a 24 hour period, 18 of them are wounded and need to be taken out. And he's telling me this and I'm just in, I'm in, I'm in awe and he's, you know, he, he and two other guys uh, were, were unscathed. They were unharmed, but because they were unharmed, they had to carry the rest of their guys and he said he was dragging these he was dragging his 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 comrades from trenches as their limbs are broken bleeding um you know he's 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 applying tourniquets all of this under heavy fire still um you know he was telling me i mean they, some of it was pretty was pretty gruesome and maybe best not to not to mention here but you can imagine the horrors of war and he was seeing all of it and he got all of them to safety. Uh, they, you know, they were they were taken to a hospital. He recovered. Um, we were speaking by um, by 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 phone when um, he was he was having a rest, and he was ready to go back. And he said, "When they when they tell me that I need to go back in a few days, I'll go." And you know, I I was shocked by that because I never never could see him as a soldier, but now here he was, incredibly brave. I think, you know, probably high on adrenaline, you know, too, as, as I think you sort of need to be, to be aware and kind of always in, in battle mode out there. And he told me something that really surprised me. He said, you know, because I, I, I said something like, I'm really sorry that you're experiencing this. It's, it's awful. Like, I really wish you could just come back to Kiev. And he said, no, 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 I'm, I'm glad that I'm here. He said, uh, he said, he used the word vivid. He said, uh, I'm actually now living a very vivid life. You know, for, to him, it was like the war in Technicolor, right? Like suddenly everything around him was, 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 was bright and every moment meant something and every sound was, was, was uh, elevated. Um, and uh, it gave him a meaning and a purpose, I guess, that um, he maybe didn't have or didn't have in, in, in such a way previously. Yeah, lots of stories like that. I also know lots of stories like that. Maybe my last question. We are recording this interview on the 6th of June and yesterday we buried our... Of July. Of July, I'm sorry, yes. And yesterday we buried our dearest friend and colleague, Victoria Melina, and... Uh, uh, we traveled with her many times to the east, to the south, and I also know that you knew her. What is it for you? What what does her death say about us? Yeah, I you know I, I didn't know her as well as you did. She was my neighbor. And we made we had made plans just just a couple of days before uh, the Russian missiles strike, and she was taken to hospital um, to have brunch that weekend. And we were going to talk about writing. I was going to give her a copy of my new book and I was going to have her sign a copy of hers. 
you know, I I really admired her. I think she, you know, we were we were talking earlier um, before we started the podcast just about how um, there hadn't been as many, or maybe you mentioned on here that there hadn't been as many Ukrainian authors publishing books during the war. But she she did a lot of writing, and it was extremely detailed and honest and matter of fact right i don't think she used a lot of flowery language she really said very well exactly what was happening you know i i could see in a way her being viewed as a martyr by some i think she's a symbol i mean you know she was more than an author and a writer she was a war crimes investigator and, and documenter and she had gone all around doing that and it was really important to her i think i think you know she's going to be probably a symbol of strength and, and resilience and um, an inspiration for others to do things that they m didn't expect themselves to be able to do i know you i mean just from the outpouring of of messages of 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 condolences and support for her family and friends and community online and uh, at the memorial services that we were at in Kiev and uh, that you were at in Lviv, um, you know there are a lot of people out there that cared about her. Um, I think one thing that her death highlights is the fact that Ukraine is losing some of its very best people. That these people are being targeted. That was a pizzeria that she was at that Ukrainian journalists, international journalists, um, other, uh, other civilians were at. It was struck with a high-precision Iskander missile. I don't think for one moment that it missed its target. I think Russia wants to eradicate Ukraine and Ukrainians and its culture. And she is one of several writers and artists that have that have been killed, um, you know. So I think I, I it's it, certainly that is going to have an impact. But hopefully, uh, and and knowing knowing how Ukrainians are, I, I think there will some people will find a way to to remember her to use this um, this moment. Um, to make sure that people read her work, to produce more great work inspired by her. Thank you. Yes, we will certainly do that. Christopher Miller, thank you so much for this conversation. Always good to, to chat with you. This was a podcast explaining Ukraine by ukraineworld.org, a website in English about Ukraine. My name is Volodymyr Yermolenko. I'm Ukrainian philosopher and journalist, chief editor of Ukraine World. Ukraine World is brought to you by Internews Ukraine, one of the largest Ukrainian media NGOs. You can support our work at patreon.com slash Ukraine World. Stay with us and stand with Ukraine.